Chapter 5 Enlightened Foreign Policy Proponents of globalism believe the best hope of mankind is a world government to supersede all other governments, one that would establish and institutionalize one political, legal, and economic system for all mankind. Whatever human differences exist would be treated as inconsequential. With a little carrot and stick shepherding, the entire world would become one community. It is a noble concept, although it tends to ignore that all previous attempts at international or world government have hardly been successful. The League of Nations, which seemed to stir up rather than diminish conflicts, gave up the ghost at the outbreak of World War II. The peacekeeping record of the United Nations is not much better. Witness the bloodbaths in Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, Tibet, Afghanistan, and the Middle East. The United Nations only entered the Korean War because the Soviet member of the Security Council happened to be absent and could not cast his usual veto. Soviet vetoes stymied practically every effort at collective action against communist and pro-communist aggressors, just as American vetoes and opposition stymied United Nations attempts to curb Israel's persecution and dispossession of the Palestinians. The United Nations tried to remove Saddam Hussein from Kuwait by peaceful means, but President Bush wanted war, and he got his way. One way of ending family bickering is for contentious members to move out and live apart. The same advice holds true for the family of nations. Corralling many, or all of the Earth's peoples, into a world government may furnish them a stage instead of a battlefield to air their disputes, but it seldom settles them. Keeping population groups apart and separate sharply diminishes the possibility for disputes to arise. The safest guarantee of world order is to do what referees do in boxing matches. Whenever they want to stop the slugging, they separate the fighters. There are, of course, some situations and problems that demand international or regional control and regulation, among them overpopulation and matters affecting the environment. But regional, continental, or global bodies that try to interfere with the purely domestic issues of a country often do more harm than good. Different cultures have different moral standards. As long as these standards are not extended by force or undue persuasion beyond the borders of the state that is home to them, they should not be a cause of concern to other states. Universal empires are seedbeds of violence because they bring different peoples together and often force them to abandon their own habits and customs and mimic the behavior of their new masters. This form of oppression, even when conducted with velvet gloves, instigates smoldering hatred and feuds that are seldom extinguished until the alien yoke, military, economic, or cultural, is removed. Globalists, consciously or subconsciously, aim at the reduction of all mankind to a common denominator, thereby directly or indirectly pressuring billions of people to conform to ways of life that are not their own. In the long run, this process may work to the detriment of the pressurizers. In order to keep things under control, the rulers slowly adopt the behavior patterns of the ruled. So, while the cultural imperialism inherent in globalism reaches down to alter the culture of those at the bottom of the power curve, the increasing presence of the latter reaches up to modify the universal culture of the one-worlders. As a result, the cultural evolution of everyone is often slowed, if not permanently disrupted. Some of the more fanatic globalists are convinced that one constitution, one set of laws, and one matrix of values should apply to all. 
They admit there are cultural differences, but warn that paying too much heed to them leads to an abandonment of humanistic norms. In one sense, this arrogant attitude tends to reverse the old adage, let those who desire peace prepare for war. The internationalists, who only desire peace on their own terms, are not averse to the use of force to achieve their goal, even though flourishing and unique cultures are destroyed in the process and the planetary mosaic may lose more of its dwindling tesserae. When outsiders force any population group to give up, change, or modify its mores, the seeds of perpetual discord are sown. Wars have often been fought for a multitude of reasons, one of the most important being the desire of a people to conduct their own affairs, to worship their own gods, and walk in the ways of their fathers and forefathers. To deny these basic rights to any population group is tantamount to a direct assault on its members' privacy, which is often their most precious possession. But this is not to say that the word international will disappear from the dictionary with the advent of worldwide devolution. There will still be international organizations. What will be heard much less frequently are the words national and nationalism, as the number of nations diminish. In contrast to the goal of the United Nations, however, which is to keep the peace by bringing people together, the chief purpose of future global bodies will be to guard the independence and sovereignty of ethnostates. Ecology and environmental problems will demand various agreements between two or more states, as will foreign trade, which should be kept to a minimum, notwithstanding that ethnostates with limited resources will need help from abroad until they are able to put in place autonomous or semi-autonomous economies. Some ethnostates, of course, will always need certain minerals or agricultural products possessed by other ethnostates more favorably endowed by nature. Globalism, no. Unfortunately for both Jews and non-Jews, Jewish organizations will probably be in the forefront of opposition to what is being proposed in this book. Although Israel, or rather the vision of a future Israel in the eyes of many Zionists, comes quite close to fitting the description of an ethnostate. So far, the Jewish state has depended and continues to depend on Western, mainly American and German, financial aid for its survival. Without the annual billions of dollars of public and private grants and loans, the Israelis' relatively high standard of living would fall drastically. Since ethnostates are against foreign aid in principle, and since Israel has a vital interest in delaying or preventing any development that might endanger the subsidies which are its economic lifeblood, the Zionist state would have to reshape its economy drastically before it could qualify for ethnostatehood. Many foreign nations, especially those with founded or unfounded fears of Western cultural and financial imperialism, would welcome the division of the West into ethnostates. The establishment of smaller political entities would tend to weaken Western economic predominance by watering down the economies of scale. Latin American states would eagerly applaud what they would perceive as a dismemberment of gringoism. Small Western nations like Belgium, Holland, and the Scandinavian countries would be happy to see the big powers cut down to size by their division into smaller units. Since most black African nations are synthetic political constructs sitting uneasily on top of centuries-old tribalism, they might try to mimic rather than oppose the devolution of Western economic powerhouses. One of the beneficial consequences of breaking up nations into ethnostates would be a healthy narrowing of what might be characterized as political vision. Since they have no strong cultural core, multicultural states develop bloodless and abstract philosophies of government. 
events that happen anywhere are often viewed in the same light as events that happen next door. Few allowances are made for different behavioral patterns. If any state deviates from some arbitrary universal moral norm, then its sinful deviations must be punished by a break in diplomatic relations, a hostile media campaign, economic sanctions, even military measures. In contrast to small countries, which encourage or should encourage their citizens to think small, big countries encourage their citizens to think big, to worry more about what is happening abroad than at home. The more attention large nations devote to other countries, the less attention they will devote to their own problems. Problem solving should extend from the individual to the community, not the other way around. Jesus spelled it out quite nicely, Matthew 7, 2-3, but most Western politicians, if they have not forgotten his words, certainly do not heed them. Quote, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam and moat of thine own eye. Unquote. For a brilliant rundown on the dangers provoked by America's ideological fixation on foreign policy, see The Roots of Modern American Empire and The Tragedy of American Diplomacy by William Apperson Williams. Most, if not all, multiracial nations are populated by ethnic groups which have real or imagined genetic and cultural ties with majorities or minorities in other nations. These biological or psychological links can cause severe distortions in foreign policy. The population groups in one country want, often demand, and frequently get special treatment for the nations for whom they feel a special kinship. As a result, the interests of the nation as a whole often take second place to the interest of racial and cultural lobbies, which secure special trade advantages and financial aid for the governments they favor, while the nations they disfavor are punished with economic sanctions. In the worst case, this racial and cultural lobbying can lead a multiracial nation into a senseless war. Foreign policy disputes will be greatly reduced in ethnostates since whatever lobbying influences are brought to bear will come from people with the same racial or cultural background. If citizens are asked to put their lives on the line, it will not be to satisfy and mollify minorities and pressure groups. Just as racial infighting will disappear in a monoracial state, so it ought to disappear in the conduct of foreign affairs. There will, of course, always be differing attitude towards foreign policy in an ethnostate, but they will be mostly confined to differing ideas about political and economic systems, much safer subjects than race. If racial motives are involved, at least they will be directed towards shoring up the defenses of a racially and culturally related foreign state. In some ways, World Wars I and II could have been viewed as civil or interracial wars, members of Northern European descent, Britons and most Americans, against other people of Northern European descent, Germans. The ethnostate's accent on race will flag the internecine aspects of such conflicts and help to nip them in the bud. Those who deny the existence of minority influence on the foreign policy of the United States might ask themselves this question. Would South Africa have been targeted with economic sanctions and would Israel have received massive outpourings of American financial aid amounting in one form or another to more than $50 billion since the founding of the Zionist state in 1948 if the United States had no Negroes or Jews? Despite the American War of Independence, the War of 1812, and a few diplomatic sore points in the 19th century, Britain and the United States maintained a relationship that often approached cousinhood. Today, British leaders, watching the changing racial makeup of America, see this traditional relationship fading. 
This was made plain by British Conservative Party Chairman Norman Tebbit when he announced that this demographic shift will, inevitably, drive the two countries apart. I'll be sorry, he said, to see the United States becoming a less Anglo-Saxon country, a less European country. Transforming America into a patchwork of ethnostates would probably reawaken feelings of kinship with Britain and other northern European countries. At the same time, black, Hispanic, and Asian ethnostates would strengthen their own ties with Africa, Latin America, and the Orient, respectively. An ethnostate or ethnostates composed of the descendants of southern Europeans would intensify their racial and cultural links to Italy, Spain, or Greece. There might even be an ethnostate for Americans of eastern Mediterranean and Arab origin. Instead of an oversized, overextended, overpopulated nation seething with ethnic groups of sharply divergent backgrounds, all busy promoting their own particular foreign and domestic agendas, a string of ethnostates would permit various population groups to move in various political, economic, and social directions without domestic opposition from other groups moving in opposite directions, all for purely racial reasons. Better to have separate states than separate racial groups within one state. The small monoracial state is free to follow its destiny without being hobbled by the internal racial dissension that wreaks havoc in multiracial states. Governing a melting pot whose contents have never melted and are becoming more unmeltable with each passing day is a labor that even Hercules would refuse to tackle. Fear and distrust of foreigners and strangers is an inborn survival mechanism. It has obvious positive points because it stimulates and strengthens group cohesion. But the same mechanism can be turned to the advantage of an aggressor who wants to stir up war fever against another state. Sad to say, one group of people can be persuaded to hate another group of people thousands of miles away, even if the latter shares a lot of genes with the former. It is much easier, however, to develop an abiding hatred for strangers and aliens who move next door. Empire building is the opposite side of the coin of devolution. Aggressive and expansionist forces generally take over when a nation goes on the warpath. Conversely, when a nation becomes weak, it poses much less of a threat to its neighbors. Though the military aggression of one nation against another should disappear with the nation-states themselves, it is inevitable that some ethnostates, egged on by overly ambitious politicians, will try to intimidate, threaten, and even assault their neighbors. To avoid this situation, some higher authority must make it dramatically clear that a resort to force by any state, ethno or otherwise, would provoke swift retaliation. The use of arms or armies by any ethno-state against another would be a stern global no-no. Merchants of death caught selling arms to anyone will meet the same fate that their wares have reserved for millions of others. Military aggression will not only go down in the law books as a high crime, but a crime against the very concept of devolution. The Ragnarok Defense An ethnostate relying solely on its own defense capabilities could hardly survive an assault by a well-armed, aggressive nation or group of nations. This would seem to be a reasonable statement until one asks three pertinent questions. A. Is not a homogeneous fighting unit, all else being equal, better at combat than a heterogeneous one? b. Do not the people of a homogeneous state display greater loyalty to the state and a greater spirit of sacrifice than a motley, disaffected, racially mixed population that has little in common but citizenship papers? 
C is not a small monoracial state composed of a united, technologically proficient people likely to wield as much military power as a huge, sprawling, internally divided multiracial behemoth? Though it may sound more ominous than cynical, the advent of nuclear weapons appears to have been purposely timed to usher in an era of ethnostates. Today, for perhaps the first time in history, a small state has the ability to defend itself successfully against a powerful military assailant. All that is needed to immeasurably damage the aggressor is a few thermonuclear warheads mounted on missiles that can hit and demolish the enemy's largest cities. Obviously, the small state, with its meager stock of nuclear weapons, would suffer much more damage than its adversary. The odds are it would be all but obliterated. As for the aggressor state, the most it could hope for in the way of victory would be that the loss of two or three of its largest cities and millions of its population would not have a crippling and irreparable effect on its status as a great power. Faced with such a bleak prospect, no such nation is likely to start a war that would end in defeat for the winner and loser alike. Many defensive treaties would surely be enacted when ethnostates finally take shape, both in the New World and the Old. Several of the ethnostates carved out of the United States would share long stretches of frontier. The proximity of some of these states and their racial and cultural links would make effective defensive alliances relatively easy to organize. What is more, some of these ethnostates will either inherit a nuclear arsenal or have the technology to develop nuclear weapons in quantities and destructive power sufficient to give any potential aggressor second thoughts. Since it would be in the interest of these ethnostates to prevent any foreign power from meddling in new world affairs, there is no reason why the Monroe Doctrine could not be revived by extending a nuclear umbrella over both North and South America. Poorer and weaker ethnostates in the Western Hemisphere should welcome this protection. In Europe, any expansionist nation would be warned by a network of ethnostates that the slightest aggressive move would be met by a hail of nuclear-tipped missiles. The two atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki made it plain that any nation that still clings blindly to notions of traditional warfare would be faced with an enormous strategic disadvantage. Every ethnostate must provide for its survival in the event of a nuclear conflict by constructing sufficient shelters and facilities, so that when the devastation is over, enough citizens will have survived to rebuild the shattered infrastructure. Members of every ethnic group must have drummed into them that they and their culture must not be allowed to die. Whole cities can be buried underground or tunneled into mountains. Frozen sperm and ova will last for years, if not centuries. Only the spirit of defeat will bring about defeat. Only belief in the possibility of total destruction will make total destruction possible. War Deterrent Skeptics of this study have a right to ask if ethnostates, while ending many of the causes of domestic violence, might not increase the chances of war. Race has always been a prime cause of conflict. Too much stress on ethnicity might bring out more of the belligerence and aggressiveness inherent in man. Would not the benefits of the ethnostates' domestic policies be nullified by the dangers they provoked in foreign policy? This well-founded skepticism can be answered and perhaps allayed by asserting that the ethnostate would never fail to take into account man's aggressive nature, both as a source for his achievements and of his proneness to violence. In regard to the latter, the identification of an ailment is the first step towards its cure. 
modern warfare can all too easily be ratcheted up to genocide, which, in an ethnostate with its accent on racial preservation, is the crime of crimes. In this light, anyone who starts or leads a war of aggression automatically qualifies as a war criminal the moment his troops, his warplanes, or his missiles violate another country's frontiers. He is guilty of the genocide not only of a neighboring people, but of his own people, who will suffer grievously when his victims launch a massive nuclear retaliation. Not too many politicians and generals would like to go down in history with such a blot on their reputations. In the past, historians have looked upon great conquerors with some toleration, even with an element of hero worship. Once the criminalization of war has been drilled into their minds, the citizens of ethnostates would develop a lasting suspicion of power-hungry leaders who would probably be neutralized before they could show their hands. This suspicion, once it is widely diffused, might well provide the greatest surety against war yet devised. There is both irony and gratification in the prospect that the ethnostate, the most anti-ecumenical of states, might prove by its enlightened, non-interventionist foreign policy to be the most effective and stalwart deterrent to the devastation of the ecumenate.